0: Welcome to Episode 5 of Built Blocks, the podcast about cities, architecture, buildings, the built environment, and everything in between. I've always been fascinated by city gardening, whether that's gardens that pop up on empty vacant lots, rooftop gardening, or gardens in abandoned buildings. For me, the corner really turned on urban agriculture's potential a couple years ago when I read Jennifer Cockrell King's book, Food in the city, urban agriculture, and the new food revolution. City gardening isn't as new as I thought it was. Check out Paris in the 19th century, or Cuba after the Soviets left them high and dry in the late 80s. In her book, Cockrell King shares the history, the challenges, and some really convincing examples on what cities are doing today to help feed local populations. How did we get to where we are relying on the supermarket for all of our food? I don't really have an answer for that, but is this new generation picking up where our grandparents left off, sewing their own clothes, keeping chickens, and growing their own food? Maybe. Today's guest, Jennifer Cockrell King, explains.
1: It depends where we all are in our family's urbanness, um, but yeah, it's something that my grandmother certainly would have rolled her eyes at, um, and maybe somebody's great-grandmother. Um, people just grew their own food as a matter of course. It was just, um, part of having a home and having, uh, to feed yourself and to feed your kids and to feed your elders as well. Um, so it's, it's kind of everything that comes around goes around.
0: So I've always had a garden every year. I plant starts in my box gardens, usually basil, tomatoes, herbs, the super easy stuff. I'm a gardener. I'm not an urban homesteader. My family won't die if my starts don't make it. I can just go to the store and buy my stuff, right? But for how long?
1: We have this illusion of abundance I write about. You go into a grocery store and there's just so much food. I mean, there's so much choice and there's so much food. It's piled piled high, you know, in the, in the bins in the produce section. And the shelves are, you know, taller than I can reach. Um, but really the grocery stores operate on this really thin margin of profit. And so they don't want to hold inventory and especially fresh inventory goes bad way too quickly for their economic model. So, you know, every we're about three days away in any major North American or Western European city from, you know, running out of this type of food. And it takes a natural calamity or an earthquake Or an act of war or some sort of disruption in these really long distance trade routes that are completely invisible to us before we realize that we don't have quite as much food at our fingertips as we thought we had. And then my mind goes back to my mother and my grandmother who always had, you know, a good couple of months of preserves and jars and uh, sauerkraut and and whatnot under the stairs and in the basement, Um, They did not depend on the fact that every few days they could just run to a supermarket and get the next
0: round of food. Since this is a podcast about cities, why are some cities doing better than others with growing local? Some can think geography. For those on the coast, the ocean offers plentiful food, where places like the lush Willamette Valley in Oregon offers food pretty much year-round. But yet, cities in the middle of the U.S. are thriving with food grown on rooftops and vacant lots. And in front yards, too. In her book, Cockerel King illustrates successful cities growing food. City dwellers can surely grow their own, but cities and local governments have to change their codes, laws, or allow zoning for city farms to really make them work.
1: Taking down the barriers of, of growing food in cities, which used to be the norm in most North American cities, they exist geographically where they are, because they are on good farmland. I mean, people settle where they can sustain themselves. And so we either settle on coasts where we can fish, or we settle inland where there's good farmland. So we're all more or less sitting on really good farmland. Uh, We've paved over a lot of it, but there's still quite a bit of green space in cities. Um, Parkland, I mean, our taxes in our cities spend a tremendous amount of money mowing grass for parkland and trimming trees that don't produce fruit, <laughs> just leaves and, you know, the odd little nuisance of, of acorns or whatever. So um, taking, taking inventory of the land that you have is a really good step um, and include even rooftops. There's um, sort of an algorithm that says that one-sixth of every city's footprint is actually rooftop, and most rooftops are flat, and you could grow a lot of food on roofs. Um, So if you don't see the space around you, just look up and and take an aerial view of your city, and it'll change your mind completely. Um, And then remove the barriers. I mean, normally what happens is... There are bylaws and there are restrictions and there are just some, you know, physical challenges to, for people who want to grow their own food. And the best thing a municipality can do is get out of the way, frankly. I mean, remove these bylaws that are ridiculous, that say you cannot turn your front yard into a kitchen garden, um, or, you know, remove these bylaws that say that you can't keep chickens or bees in cities. Um, We have dogs and cats and raccoons and all manner of wildlife in in cities that we can't police and patrol. And then we have domestic pets, which we've learned to create bylaws around so that they can coexist in our urban environment. So we can do the same for chickens and, you know, we're not going to have livestock in cities, but, um, you know, just getting out of the way of the natural impulse of people who who want to, to be more self-sufficient is generally the thing. And then create some economic incentives. Um, there's some really good examples that I came across in writing the book. One of them is in Vancouver, uh, Canada, which is a city with notoriously expensive real estate. Um, and a lot of developers are sitting on land that is unused and unusable because it's a parking lot or something like that. While they just watch the value of their land go up and up and up, and they're happy to pay really high property taxes on it. But the city of Vancouver alleviated some of the, um, some of this tension between the amount of unused space and the will of people to garden by creating, by creating a, municipal tax scenario where if you were a developer and you had commercial land that you turned over to a community garden or an urban farm or some sort of productive food producing space your property taxes dropped dramatically and that freed up a lot of space in highly urbanized parts of Vancouver and allowed people of all economic advantages and disadvantages to access Space essentially. Cleveland has really progressive urban agriculture laws. Um, Philadelphia, just you know, odd—not odd, I guess—but communities that you don't normally think of. Detroit um, is another one where it's the what's left of the city government is getting out of the way uh, in the face of entrepreneurial people that want to create farmland in the city or or growing space in the city. And, um, you know, even little things like in uh, in Seattle is where the Beacon Hill food forest is, correct? Is it? Yes. And so that's a piece of parkland, from what I understand, that, um, you know, it's not the city is not getting too fussed about the fact that people are creating berms and (laughs) planting fruit trees and nut trees. And that's happening in Canada as well. Um, despite the more northern climate, there are a number of community orchards that have been going on for a few years now. And they're just parks in regular residential neighborhoods where they've decide- the city has decided to plant apple trees instead of birch trees. Um, and the community rallies around and they... They prune the trees when needed, and they cull the fruit, and they harvest the fruit. And it's actually less work in the end uh, for the municipal government, because the community tends the land that otherwise would have to be mowed and pruned by a commercial outfit. So.
0: One part of the book that resonated with me was the case study of Paris in the 19th century. Food-growing methods weren't developed in early countrysides. They were developed in cities. Crops were grown pretty much year-round without refrigeration. And there was an abundance of free, rich manure. I'll let Cockrell King explain.
1: Paris is such a cool, has such a cool urban agricultural history that I was completely unaware of until I started researching urban agriculture. But just before the Industrial Revolution, um, before refrigeration and railway transportation allowed us to produce a lot of food outside of urban centers. Paris, for some reason, just evolved through medieval times and then up until the mid-1800s as a place where urban farmers really flourished. One-sixth of the city was actually urban... um, I guess it was market gardens. um, And there were... uh, 3,500 acres, if I'm remembering correctly, in the city, which is a sixth of the, the landmass of Paris, that was under cultivation. And you can actually find, if you go online and Google um, urban agriculture in Paris, there are a number of historical photographs with the Eiffel Tower in the distance of these beautiful walled gardens. So Paris is not particularly, it's, it's not, the Salinas Valley by any stretch of the imagination. Like it's cold and it's wet and has four seasons. Um, But they used masonry walls to make enclosures to trap heat and raised beds to, that were heavily, um, they would use a lot of the horse manure, which was actually just a transportation pollution problem. Horse manure, which in fact creates heat as it decomposes. And they were able to get, Um, three to six crops a year off of these growing systems in a fairly continental climate that gets fairly chilly in the winter and it was enough to actually feed every Parisian his or her requirement of fresh vegetables and fruits for the year and they would create so much excess they were exporting all over Europe to England and and elsewhere on the continent so um It can be done.
0: One thing that concerns me about farming in our food, really, in general in cities and in our farmlands, is the disappearance of farmland by developers. I'm not anti-development, but we need to somehow save our precious farmland. Every minute in the United States, over an acre of agriculture land is lost to commercial and residential development. That's stunning. How cities plan for this growth, but that will still allow residents and programs to grow food, will be a huge challenge.
1: The destruction of farmland is particularly distressing to me. Um, I watch it happen in my home city, which has uh, some of the best farmland. It's the bo- It's it's where the Great Plains meet the boreal forest, and and there are meters as we say here feet many feet of rich blacktop um, that are actually just being moved out of the way by giant bulldozers because it's inconveniently soft and full of compost and hummus and nutrients and we want to build subdivisions on it it's like watching the destruction of an old growth forest for me because it's essentially the same this is farmland this is this is earth and soil that has accumulated over tens of thousands of years and we're just pushing it out of the way for single detached homes and you know three car garages um so it's a it's a huge problem and we continue to create more people yet we continue to gobble up the land that supports the people that we continue to create. So at some point there's going to be this tension and um, I'm not sure how we're going to, well, it'll be a self-limiting kind of equation at, at some point, but it'll cause a lot of pain and stress and hardship for people. So if we could maybe hold back on our, desire to sprawl and to create these sort of unsustainable um, cityscapes and figure out new ways to design cities that are denser. I mean Portland has done a great job of that and and other cities as well but you know in the in the great flyover part of of the continent we we just are really bad about restraining our our sprawl and it will eventually push us towards more marginal farmland and that's what is happening. And then we outsource our food growing to other countries where out of economic necessity, they, you know, tear down another acre of the rainforest or they displace other people or they displace traditional communities that are living on the land um, and, it's being taken over for, you know, corporate farming. So there's just a lot of, um, it's a lot of incentive for city planners to actually put food at the center of an urban planning strategy. Uh, one really interesting occasion that really clarified it for me was in my hometown, the city council was grappling with creating a new 30-year Municipal development plan, and there was no talk of saving, you know, the farmland that exists in my city um, and protecting it almost in like an agricultural land reserve sort of scenario. It was just a free for all, and and sure, if you're sitting on twenty acres of farmland and that can become industrial land, um, some industrial developer will pay a lot more than a a farmer can.
0: I'm optimistic about how cities are planning. To make room for city gardens. But you don't have to wait for them. Whether you live in an apartment with a small balcony outside or a suburban home with the front yard, you can garden. But take Cockrell King's advice, start small and grow smart.
1: We can't grow all our own food, but things, things like basil, I mean that's a prime example of something you should grow at home even if you have a tiny little footprint apartment. First of all, it's so expensive when you go and buy that two little, you know, sprigs at the grocery store. Now, potatoes, not very convenient for condo dwellers, and really, they're not that expensive. So, you know, I always tell people, grow the things that you pay the most for. (laughs) So, herbs are great, you know, things that, you know, a few tomatoes too, because, Unless you live in a city where you've got access to really good farmers, you cannot get a good tomato from a grocery store anywhere. No matter what you pay, $100 will not get you the flavor that you are looking for in a tomato.
0: As cities continue to grow, so will their local food sources. I'm convinced of that. Here are some parting takeaways from the website Urban Vine. An average 10 by 20 urban farming plot in New York City can produce in between $500 and $700 worth of edible food in one season. In Cleveland, if 80% of every vacant lot, 62% of commercial rooftop space, that's a lot, and 9% of every residential lot was used for urban farming, all of Cleveland's fresh produce needs could be met with produce grown within city limits. That's impressive. If you're at all interested in growing food in the city, Pick up Cockrell King's book. Her current book, Food Artisans of the Okanagan, highlights local food and producers in the Okanagan Valley in Canada. She's also working on a new book on seed saving. For more on her work, visit her website at foodgirl.ca. Thanks to Cockrell King for the time she took to talk with me. And thank you for listening. For show notes, visit builtblocks.com. I'll see you next time. Thanks.